This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Imagine a world where nothing is as you expect it to be. You take a drive in your car and green light means stop and red lights mean go. Folk music is considered corrupt, evil, politically incorrect, while commercial rock is the sound of integrity. Fascists and communists, traditionally sworn enemies, are now working together toward common goals, even once familiar labels have been mischievously switched. A can of beans might contain caviar, motor oil, or paint thinner. Our objects of contemporary life are, as never before, redesigned to manipulate belief and desire. There is a design renaissance underway, and it is forcing us to see everyday things in entirely new ways. Some may blame it on social dichotomy or a more fashionable design anarchy. Some, like Herbert Mouchamp, architecture critic for the New York Times, thinks that design is an art of transition, a method of building bridges between our inner and our outer worlds. Mouchamp derives this concept from D.W. Winnicott, the great British psychoanalyst who specialized in child development. Winnicott believed that in the process of separating from their mothers, children use what he called transitional objects, a toy, a spoon, a blanket, or a pillow. Such objects, Winnicott thought, play a pivotal role in our gradual apprehension that we have been born into a world over which we do not exercise omnipotent control. As much as parents or other human beings, transitional objects teach us the difference between objective and subjective states. They also help us comprehend that our inner and outer realms are seldom sharply divided. Design is now a cultural transitional object. The things we produce and a consumer buys extend into our lives the process of simultaneously merging with and differentiating ourselves from the world of others. I now believe it is the ultimate in our effort to both stand out and also to fit in. Plates, chairs, colas, sneakers, these artifacts and products are currency in the dynamic exchange between the world we've, we've absorbed and the larger cultural universe. We may create our buildings and our soda packages, but now our buildings and our soda packages have come to define us. Yes, we may be living in a design renaissance, but I think it is more than that. I think we are now living in a design economy. With design, we are now asserting moods, tastes, whims, and actually aspirations for change. But why does someone choose to buy an iPod or a Michael Graves spatula from Target or a chair from Ikea or a Philippe Stark toilet brush? Today, design is creating a gestalt around products and clothes and cars and airplanes and bathroom accessories and so on, which allow consumers to experience this new type of experience based on newly created cultural ideologies. 
I saw Virginia Pastrell present on Wednesday at the Institute of International Research Conference on Brand Identity and Package Design. She was, as I had anticipated, brilliant. She believes that we are now living in an age of the aesthetic imperative. But when she talks about aesthetics, she's not really talking about aesthetics in the classical sense. She's talking about communicating through the senses, creating reactions with design, not with words. She believes this type of imperative shows rather than tells and delights rather than instructs. The effects of this imperative are far more immediate and much more visceral. She went on to talk about the dichotomies our culture is presently engaged in. Once again, we are back to the battle over the need to stand out as individuals with the intrinsic need we have in our human nature to fit in. She believes, as do I, that we are now looking at design to represent us in a different way rather than simply indicating that we might just like something. We are now using, de using design to represent that we are like that something. It is in that model, that configuration, so to speak, that makes Starbucks an aesthetic environment where we are creating our own meaning, both for it and ourselves, rather than simply a themed restaurant. It is both for it and ourselves rather than simply that theme. It is much more a we supply the pleasure, but the individual supplies the meaning. And all of this is being led by design. Virginia Postrell is a woman that doesn't really need to quote other people to make her point, but in talking about design on Wednesday, she did refer to one designer. She suggested, via the work and point of view of this particular designer, that there is no such thing as an undesigned graphic object anymore, though there used to be. It was a quietly profound moment, and it continued to resonate throughout her mind-blowing presentation. The designer that she was quoting was Michael Beirut. And dear listeners, I am so thrilled to let you know that today, on this very afternoon, we have Michael Beirut as a guest on our show. But before we get started, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about him. Michael Beirut was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and he studied graphic design at the University of Cincinnati's College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning. Prior to joining Pentagram as a partner in 1990, he was Vice President of Graphic Design at Vignelli Associates. At Pentagram, Michael is responsible for leading a team of graphic designers who create identity design, environmental graphic design, and editorial design solutions. He has won hundreds of design awards, and his work is represented in several permanent collections, including the Museum of Modern Art and the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York, the Library of Congress in Washington, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Denver Art Museum, and many international museums, the names of which are too daunting for me to try and attempt to say here today. Michael has been very active in the American Institute of Graphic Arts, better known as the AIGA, having served as the president of the New York chapter from 1988 to 1990 and as the president of the national AIGA from 1998 to 2001. He currently serves as a director of the Architectural League of New York and of New Yorkers for Parks. And in 1989, Michael was elected to the Alliance Graphique Internationale, and in 2003, he was named to the Art Director's Hall of Fame. Welcome, Michael Beirut. Um, hi, Debbie. <laughs> hi, Michael. How are you? Good. What are you doing? Um, I'm, um, I'm just sitting in uh, the one empty conference room here at Pentagram on a Friday afternoon. Okay. Well, um, we have something in common today, or in the last 24 hours, uh, you and I both wrote a piece 
on the blogs that we write for about the redesign of the food pyramid. Um, I'm assuming that our listeners know that the uh, pyramid that the government had issued many, many years ago about what Americans were supposed to eat, what quantity, and pretty much the order in which they were supposed to eat, it was recently redesigned. There are now 12 different options depending on your body type and level of exercise. And he felt sad when you saw the redesign. Tell me why. Well, I didn't mention this in my piece uh, on designs around the blog that I write on, but uh, um, one of the things that actually dismayed me was those 12 different options. Just yeah. to be some symbol of the continued kind of disintegration of a common culture we uh, have, used to enjoy as Americans. It used to be we'd all just watch three networks and kind of all, you know, it seemed like <laughs> this golden age of homogeneity, and now you know we can't even all agree on how many vegetables we're supposed to eat. You know, yeah. you know, it's all it's different for everyone. You know, and that's why it, uh, you know, um, as, as easy as it, as it is to uh, uh, make fun of the uh, or criticize, say the um, uh, you know the new food pyramid. Uh, you know, it's actually been done very conscientiously, uh, not executed perfectly, I don't think. But they've actually been, I thought, pretty daring in uh, in the way they've approached it. You know, they've, uh, as you know, it's now called uh, My Pyramid, one word, capital M, capital P, and the the website is uh, My Period, My my Pyramid, that's another website, I think, MyPyramid.gov, G-O-V, and um, that's meant to sort of signal that this is like a personal thing that you as uh, as an individual concerned with nutrition, health, and fitness would uh, um, be able to undertake as sort of a personal matter and not be dictated in a paternalistic way from uh, the government or other authorities. And I, something tells me that that's somehow the outcome of a lot of research. Um, you know, and, and, and I have to admit, to that end and to the confidence that they have that a simple uh, you know, graphic drawing or set of drawings uh, can actually inspire Americans to lead healthier lives is something that I'd be not eager at all to uh, dissuade them from. So I applaud all that, that's for sure. Yeah, I absolutely applaud the effort. I don't know, though, that this new pyramid is in any way either inspirational or aspirational in terms of getting people to think about things that they might not have thought of before. As a matter of fact, I actually think it's probably a detriment to being able to understand what you're supposed to do. I mean, I think that it's daunting in terms of understanding how to get into what it is you need to be doing to be healthier. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, it was, uh, um, you know, in the piece that I wrote, I, uh, I read your piece first, and it's actually, your piece is very thoughtful and uh, well-researched overview of kind of the whole history of uh, government efforts to uh, modify American eating habits, and that kind of freed me just to kind of do a sort of Proustian reverie about my own memories of the food pyramid as a child. And I yes. remember it actually pretty clearly because it was actually, it was, it was, it was one of those cases then where uh, um, inadvertently I think they had married form to meaning. You know, they had uh, at the base of the food pyramid were grains. And they, were, and they suggested that you could eat a stupendous amount of servings of grains, up to 11 a day. And I, and I, I submit, one of, the, and one of the things I enjoyed the most was that uh, um, they 
they sort of never, I assume somewhere in, in it they defined somehow what a serving was. But it seemed like a serving was like, you know, about as much as you'd eat at a time, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if he could eat half a loaf of Wonder Bread at a time, that would be like one serving of grain with ten left to go before dusk, you know. Right, and that's why 65% of Americans are now obese. <laughs> so, uh, so, I, so that was the big broad base of the pyramid. And then there was like, um, you know, as you ascended, there were fruits and vegetables, then milk and meat. And then finally at the very pinnacle were sweets. And I love the fact that sweets were at the very top because they were the best, you know. Right. Um, and, and they rightfully deserve to be like kind of the, the, the gem of the whole thing, the glistening kind of apex of the ziggurat, you know. And, um, and, of course, that's exactly what they didn't want you to think. You know, you're supposed to be minimizing the interest in sweets. So um, I think the, uh, the whole thing is sort of like needs to be upended and had been and kind of haphazardly so. Okay, well, Michael, we uh, actually are being told that we need to take a little bit of a break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely, wonderful Michael Beirut. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Rob Wallace. My partners and I run one of the country's premier brand identity and packaging design consultancies, Wallace Church. And if you're like me, you've already become an avid fan of the program that you're listening to, Design Matters. And if you're like me, you want more. You want a deeper dive into some of the strategic and creative issues that have inspired design and affect consumer buying behavior. You want to engage the speakers on a one-to-one basis. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are in luck. Through the Institute of International Research, a three-day conference is being held in Manhattan's Grand Dom on April 18th through 20th. The conference name is Fuse, and its focus is on the synergy of brand strategy, design, and performance. It promises to be the year's most informative brand identity industry event. Debbie Millman of Design Matters will join Cheryl Swanson to host an elite group of brand identity thought leaders from the marketing, design, and consumer insights worlds. You'll hear from Mary Ann Pesch, the president of Gillette Company's personal care division, on the identity strategies that have shaped some of the most successful world brand launches. Design Matters guests Professor Grant McCracken will analyze the cultural trends that affect consumer interactions with brands. Stanley Hainsworth, global creative director of Starbucks, will be sharing the critical role that design played in the success of that brand phenom, and I will be moderating a panel of corporate design leaders from Nestle, Unilever Foods, Sharing Plow, and the retailer CVS, where you can directly engage them with your questions. This event is dedicated to delivering the most forward-thinking and inspirational as well as real-world and actionable criteria into how you can optimize brand identity in your organization. It is simply not to be missed. For more information, call 888-670-8200. That's 888-670-8200. Or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD for brand identity package design. Again, www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD. Mention Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I look most forward to meeting you on April 18th at the Plaza here in New York City. One aspect of the American dream is a safe and decent place to live that fits within each person's capabilities. capability. Based on the individual and the community, home has very many different meanings. 
discussion on housing issues, log on and listen to Let's Talk Affordable Housing with Ginger McClure every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on the bottom line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the witty and fascinating Michael Beirut, partner at arguably the most famous design firm in the world, Pentagram. If you'd like to join our conversation or have a question for either of us, please call 1-866-233-7861. Before the break, Michael and I were talking about the redesigned food pyramid. And one of the things that I liked about the old pyramids, especially the, the first pyramid, were the charming little illustrations of all the food groups. And just looking at them now, I feel this sort of wonderful nostalgia for what was, even though it never really was, because the things that I ate in my childhood included things like wise barbecue potato tri- chips and yodels. And, you know, I, I, I hardly ever had an opportunity to really, you know, appreciate the 11 uh, servings of grains. I was too busy at the top of the pyramid with, you know, yodels and ring things. Um, but another thing that I think you and I both share in common is our fascination for children's books, another article on your blog, and I should let our listeners know that Michael's blog is called Design Observer, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but the address is www.designobserver.com. Another piece that you wrote a couple of months ago was about the illustrator Alton S. Toby, Jr., and your fascination with his work when you were a child, um, and you believing at the time, and and maybe still do, that he was one of the best illustrators traders in the world. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, well, I think when um, when I first encountered his work, which would have been in 1963 when I was six or seven years old, uh, um, I don't need, I wouldn't have called him the best illustrator. He was just the plain best artist in the world. Best artist, that's right. I, I, mean, I, swear, yeah. I didn't know the difference between an artist and an illustrator. I just thought he was just, he was just an amazing artist. And what he had done, um, I knew him from one thing, which was a, um, uh, a hard Bound series of books published by Golden Book called the um, uh, the Golden Book History of the United States that I think came in twelve volumes and um, for whatever reason they determined at the outset to not use any photography in the books but instead to have most of the major illustrations done by this one guy uh, who signed his name Alton S. Toby Jr. and um, the pictures were you know very um, uh, you know. Uh, very much in the kind of like robust American tradition of like uh, you know Remington or something, or very uh, um, a painterly, really skillful, uh, um, elaborate panoramic uh, um, you know uh, paintings of historical scenes. You know, uh, the president's being assassinated, Teddy Roosevelt going up San Juan Hill. You know, the driving of the Golden Spike to complete the Transcontinental Railroad. All these incredibly vivid images, um, beautifully rendered, and just page after page after page of it. And um, and I and I just probably you know I 
I lost all but one volume of this book, uh, volume seven, I think, which was uh, uh, about the turn of the century, uh, uh, like 1900 or so. And uh, his name kind of had slipped out of memory, but then I um, happened to run into him a couple times as an adult because he uh, uh, he lived up by me, as it turned out, and uh, where I live in uh, uh, Westchester County, north of New York City. And it was just a, uh, you know, when someone said, oh, uh, you know, uh, Oh, Alton S. Toby is going to be at this dinner. Oh, you know, at this dinner, you know, there's a guy there named Alton Toby. I don't know if you know. And I said, Alton S. Toby Jr.? And I, and I, and I have to admit, I sort of like bit my tongue from saying the guy from the Golden Book History of the United States, because, like, no one had ever heard of this guy, outside, as far as I could tell, except for me. And I, you know, I, I met him at a at a, uh, a thing at a museum up in Westchester, and uh, uh, this was about 20 five years ago at this point, 20 years ago, and um, I introduced myself and I said, you know, um, you know, I have to tell you, your books changed my life, you know, I, uh, um, you did the, I, I said, you are the guy that did the gold book, as you know, I said, he just like laughed and said, oh, no one ever, no one talks to me about that anymore, but he, uh, he confessed that, um, um, you know, he agreed to do it and kind of banged them all out in a matter of months, and for this one lump sum with which he and his wife were, were able to go on a, uh, to like a three-month vacation in Europe. And until, it's funny, until he said that, I'd never actually pictured the physical feat that it took to kind of like grind out all those paintings, you know, mm-hmm. to know that you had to do that many, to know that each one of them had to be researched and accurate, and just kind of like be ticking off a list one after another. All of a sudden, the, the weight of it was just so staggering. Here was this like charming, relaxed guy in front of me talking about it, you know, so it was, it was, it was really a... Um, uh, amazing to uh, uh, to sort of uh, you know to have a name that sort of looms so large in your own imagination and seemingly alone in my imagination among people that I knew than to meet the guy much later on. Mm-hmm. Was he everything you expected him to be? Oh, he looked exactly. He had a goatee. He looked exactly like an artist. Yeah, he was exactly what I expected him to be. Then I saw then he's actually had an exhibition just before he died a few years ago um, at a live at the public library in New Rochelle, New York. And uh, I took my son uh, to go see him, and I uh, took a, I actually took a copy of uh, of the Gold Book History of the United States, Volume Seven, with me. I thought he could sign it, but by then he was in a wheelchair. He had a stroke. He was like uh, not really talking. But uh, I had a chance to shake his hand and uh, tell him again what how much his work had meant to me, and it's in. He seemed, you know, it was, it, was, it was. I mean, to me, it was a really moving moment, actually. Because mm-hmm. I, you know, because I actually, you know, I sort of like uh, oddly met the guy, you know, for encountered his work in 1964, say, met him face to face in 1984, say, then met him for the last time in 2004. You know, so I had these like three moments, each separated by 20 years, uh, where I was 20 years older each time as well. So it just goes to show you. Well, that's extraordinary. Um, I, I find it so fascinating, as I have been trying to reconstruct my children's library, children's book library, to come across things that I haven't seen in 20 or 30 or 40 years, and it's really amazing the um, sort of emotional, visceral. Um, experience that that becomes to suddenly be back in that place. It suddenly makes that time in your life feel much more real. Um, and I, I've been noticing that on the market right now, there's a 
a number of brands that are bringing back their um, vintage packaging, so to speak. Ivory Soap has. There's now a new collection of Band-Aid tins that have come out that are collectible, so to speak, um, all with the original graphics. What do you think is going on here? Do you feel like people are searching for some part of their history that they might feel is gone forever? Um, it might, I mean, might, it's, it's hard to say. Part of it, obviously, is uh, uh, nostalgia is at play on some level, I would say. And then I think um, uh, certainly... I mean, I'm not. Sure, I, I'm never quite sure how much these things resonate with other people as they do with with people like you and me, who uh, uh, you know, who grew up to become designers and you know, were slightly and have become more sensitized to things like you know, typefaces and colors and design and package design and book design and stuff like that. Um, I also think you know, one of the motivations is you know, a ambition on the part of those kinds of companies to sort of establish themselves as icons on the American kind of commercial and visual landscape in a way. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, there have always been some of those, you know, uh, Coca-Cola probably being um, the one you'd think of first and foremost. But I think we'd also name people, we, you know, Band-Aid tins certainly sort of have that same sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh, resonance. And I was uh, over in our London office, and uh, one of my partners there had bought at an antique uh, store for not an insubstantial sum of money, a early 60s Paul Rand package for uh, typewriter ribbon, which oh, he had proudly displayed on his desk. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the difference being, of course, you know, um, you know, if we could just go back in the past, you know, every single secretary in every office uh, in a uh, um, you know, in the Western world would have these things kind of in their drawers and their garbage cans laying around because it was just kind of like disposable packaging, a disposable cardboard package. You know, I thought and I was sort of like almost electrified, you know. <laughs> God, where'd you get this? And he said, oh, I bought it at that place across the way, which is a fairly fancy kind of uh, antiquarian uh, fine print and bookseller, you know, uh, who sort of had a taste for that sort of thing. But, it, you know, it, in, in a way, it all, you know, I saw it, and uh, it was, that wasn't even part of my past, but it sort of, like, spoke to a different moment in design that suddenly seems to acquire a lot of value as it recedes further and further. Absolutely. Industry. Thank God for eBay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of the Internet, however briefly, um, your blog, Design Observer, you started it about a year and a half ago with Rick Pointer, Jessica Helfand, and William Drentel, and now Mo Miss, Lorraine Wilde, and Tom Vanderbilt have joined you as well. Um, what excites you by this new medium, and what do you what do you hope to do with it? Um, well, I don't have any particular goals outside of uh, um, giving some providing event to my desire to write something every now and then. And I have to admit, I've always enjoyed writing, and I think I'm. Um, Good at it sometimes, but what's always frustrating me about it are deadlines, which I have to admit I react really badly to as a writer. I can manage really well as a designer with deadlines, but uh, uh, those few times where, where magazine editors have asked me to write things for them, even modest things, uh, you know, I just kind of will, you know, the deadline will hang over my head till it's almost as, you know, um, spirit-crushing thing <laughs> that I almost can't see around or beyond. And then I'll finally cough out the 350 words that were asked of me, and it's never that hard, but some other deadline really bugs me. And then the thing that also always drove me crazy about um, print you know, media was um, then you'd submit the thing finally, and then you'd wait you know, um, months before 
you, it would see the light of day. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then finally, the last thing is, as you probably know, is that once those things do see the light of day, uh, it would be really, um, you sort of wait. There's no evidence that anyone's read it, uh, and there's no, it's generally not much kind of response comes back about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, weblogs provide solutions to all three of those things in one fell swoop. You know, you don't have a deadline. You can just kind of get the impulse to write something and post it whenever you want. I mean, with seven contributors, we try to keep a certain amount of decorum in terms of going over each other's posts. Um, but uh, you can basically kind of, you know, uh, finish it and kind of publish it pretty quickly. Then um, uh, once you've had that experience of instant satisfaction, you know, you start getting comments right away. So, or sometimes, right. sometimes you'll get comments, sometimes you won't, but you'll, you'll get evidence right away that people have read the thing, you know. I read so, that Steve Heller. Oh, I'm sorry, you were saying? Yeah, so, um, uh, so um, uh, you know, I find that I write a lot for this thing, you know, now. And, um, and part of it is just that I just, um, it's a way to kind of think through, just, just as it was about this food pyramid thing, you know, it's sort of right. like something that's happened in the design world. You get a chance to sort of like think it through in writing in public. And um, and people read it and, uh, and then perhaps uh, learn a little about design themselves. Well, wonderful. We'll continue this after the break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Michael Beirut. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. You're listening to The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Good afternoon. I'm Pamela DeCesar of Brand Muse, and I'm excited to talk with you about the upcoming Brand Identity and Package Design Conference in April in New York City. I've been involved in this event for a number of years and love the yearly discussions that examine marketing, design, research, and production trends and get to the heart of the most pressing issues facing us in the industry today. Discover the reality of design in corporate America and the paradox of packaging. Design gurus Bruce Mao and John Maida, along with brand leaders from Gillette, General Mills, and MTV, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face and will deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. Highlights this year include a dynamic multi-speaker symposium focused on capturing the global market, more speakers and sessions than ever before, Two new interactive workshops on making better color choices and breaking out of the box to achieve packaging innovation. A panel discussion on how two functions, creative and research, can work together effectively. Plus the cocktail party to connect and network with colleagues and friends. For more information, call 888-670-8200 or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or email register at IIRUSA.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. So rise to the challenge. Consider this conference an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. So see you in the Big Apple at the Plaza, April 18th through the 20th. Achieve total wealth management. 
Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On Managing Technology the Right Way, we'll talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its associated risks. Heard every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Sun Jogal, the host of Managing Technology the Right Way, will interview business leaders and other experts that have shaped the way we use technology. If you want to keep up with the changing world of technology, listen to Managing Technology the Right Way with Sun Jogal every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only Internet talk radio show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Michael Beirut a partner at Pentagram. If you want to join our conversation or have a question for either of us, please call 1-866-233-7861. Before the break, we were talking about blogs, and I've only gotten to question two of my about 40 that I prepared for Michael, and it's going by very quickly. Um, The last little bit I want to talk about blogs today is um, to remind you of a quote that Steve Heller made. Apparently, he got very upset when you quoted at a recent uh, event that you would never write for a magazine again. Is that true? And have you really stopped? Um, I did say that, and I have to admit, when um, when uh, when editors from real magazines call me up and ask whether I want to write something, I just it makes me feel incredibly exhausted when I picture the process and sort of like what the the, um, uh, the thanklessness of it all. And, you know, the difference is, of course, that, we, you know, we make no money at all off our blog, just like in the true fine blogging tradition. Right. And uh, um, the editors sometimes have little stipends. They'll pay for the articles. But, they, but I, I find writing, uh, particularly on assignments, so unpleasant that uh, virtually whatever amount of money I've been offered seems like scant compensation for the amount of suffering that I do while I'm doing it. So <laughs> yeah. I found it easy just to sort of like say no. My, my family already dislikes it when I sort of sit around and putter away at this thing. It's like time away from them. So um, more of the same, even uh, uh, pathetically uh, recompensed for it. Uh, it seems like not a good thing. Now, you recently hired Armin Vitt, the founder of uh, another design blog called Speak Up. Do you guys sit and duke it out over who's going to get what topics? No, we never. No, no, on the contrary. Uh, uh, when um, uh, when Armin joined us here, one of the, you know, I, I think we had sort of a uh, an understanding that we'd kind of keep those two things uh, separate, although some people thought this was some kind of um, a road on the way to a merger, I think. It is. <laughs> And it's interesting. I think that we've actually kind of, you know, just as things sort themselves out kind of neatly, um, you know, Design Observer tends to, um, is, is, is actually less of a, I mean, we get a lot of comments sometimes, but it's actually less of a discussion forum and more of a kind of classic, 
um, you know, online journal sort of thing, you know, mm-hmm. where the writers just write things. And then some people comment, and sometimes, sometimes there are really interesting things that you just, people just, that I can't even figure out a way to comment on them if it's one of my fellow writers has written it. Whereas Speak Up, I think, was really, you know, created by Armin and uh, all the contributors, including you, Debbie, to really provide a springboard for a really lively discussion, which it does beautifully. Well, it does get feisty sometimes, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So, Michael, you've been at Pentagram for 15 years. Um, has it always been wonderful? Yeah, I admit I like working at Pentagram partly because, well, mostly because it sort of combines, uh, um, you know, it's the best of both worlds for design practice for me. Um, when I when I was ready to leave my previous position, I had gotten used to uh, working in a larger environment with other things going on around me, work that I wasn't responsible for, with other people to talk to, with other things that could stimulate me, which you get in a large kind of a um, setting like a typical large-scale design consultancy. Um, yet I kind of was looking for some place where I could work you know, more independently and kind of do autonomous projects where I wouldn't have to answer to anyone necessarily, which you can't usually get in a large organization. Mm-hmm. And uniquely, Pentagram is, is one. Well, maybe perhaps not totally uniquely, but uh, Pentagram is one of the rare ones that sort of combine those two things at a certain scale because each of the partners here, and I'm one of 19 partners who work in five offices around the world, um, each of the partners has their own kind of uh, studio within the overall uh, within the overall firm structure that operates that's, a, that's designed to operate almost like a small you know uh, design studio with no more than you know a half dozen people or so mm-hmm. um, staffing it and so we're able to take on really really small projects on one hand and uh, working in concert with other teams larger interdisciplinary international projects on the other depending on what the client is and so and those, and I I'm, both size of project really interests me, uh, and uh, both in the prospect of both working with really talented people like uh, the people on my team, like Armin and uh, his colleagues, and all my partners, including my New York partners, Paul Scher and Woody Pirtle and Abbott Miller, Lisa Strasfeld, and um, Michael Garricky and Jim Beaver, um, you know, sort of give me... Uh, a chance to kind of continue going to this endless graduate school in design that, you know, I think is the only thing that's really kept me fresh as a designer, if I've stayed fresh at all. Mm, well, I certainly think you have. Uh, why no account people at Pentagram? That's very in, in a very unusual model for a design firm. Yeah, it's um. Well, we don't have. I think it's it comes out of the fact that the original founders and it was when it was founded in back in 1972 when I was in the ninth grade. Um, I think the premise was pretty much the way I just described it. Combine, uh, you know, what was thought to be the uh, creative vitality of the small studio practice with the larger um, resources that a with more advanced more extensive resources that a larger structure could give you and um, the original founders were all guys who um, and they were all they were five guys five British guys um, who felt that um, to do effective design work you had to be the client had to hire you not hire like a you know, an abstract institution, but hire you as a person and have good chemistry with you as the lead designer, that you as that designer with responsibility for the work had to go to the meetings at the beginning and kind of, 
you know, uh, obtain the brief, clarify any outstanding questions, do the necessary research to kind of learn what you needed to do to do the design work. Then you had to do the, then you had to do that design work, take a stand on it, then personally present it to the client and follow through to make sure it was realized. I think there are a lot of designers who find one aspect or another of that process sort of uh, either aggravating or boring or even outright distasteful. But uh, um, the the client, you know, if you sort of are committed to all of them, it kind of means that you're going to work with clients that you like on projects that you find interesting, and um, and hopefully that will lead to a better outcome for you and for your client. Um, I do think it's had the effect of, among other things, limiting the size of our practice to a certain degree. I mean, each mm-hmm. each team can only really do a certain amount of work with a certain number of clients, and there's a real limit to how much uh, any one team can expand. So the expansion that we've had has all been by adding additional partners who bring in their own teams and often additional disciplines or additional interests. How do you choose the partners? Um, it's really funny. It's, um, uh, it's If you sort of like draw, take one big group that's people that are people who are uh, – um, capable of functioning within an environment like that, um, because uh, and then you take another group uh, that's people who are willing to join a group like that. Um, the overlap ends up being really small. Like as of right now, it's like 19 people. That's how big the overlap is in the whole world. Um, and so um, sometimes, a lot of times, it's someone who we've um, uh, been collaborating with or run across in some you know professional context. The original five guys came together because they all worked for. On a project for a single client for um, for BP, the oil company, and uh, you know the, there's an architect uh, Theo Crosby who is designing gas stations, and a product designer Ken Grange who is designing uh, you know gas pumps, and then three graphic designers who are doing signage and identity for them, and uh, Colin Forbes, Alan Fletcher, and Bourbon Kalinsky, and then the five of them because they like working together, so maybe we could do this more and see what would come of it. But then, so they did that, but they also kept on doing you know small apartments renovations in the case of the architect or, uh, uh, you know, book jackets or logos for nonprofits on the part of any one of the graphic designers, as well as being able to take on larger corporate work. So it's um, people who are interested in kind of working in that model, a lot of the ones that have the talent and the ego to withstand the, um, um, you know, the scrutiny that the partnership gives you sort of have a you know, a reluctance to give up their autonomy and join a larger group. There's no real benefit in their view to doing it. And then there are ones who are kind of more eager to do it but probably wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, handle the pressure of kind of working as we do here in New York in an, uh, in an environment where all the partners work out in the open and all the work's out in the open and there's, like, no place to hide. and You're basically just kind of uh, uh, there to... Uh, uh, both hold your own as a strong designer, but be a proactive member of a larger group. Now, do people you ever approach you to come into the partnership, or is it generally something where you go to other people? Sometimes, yes. Yeah, sometimes uh, it's happened on occasion, and it's happened on occasion we've gone to other people, and it's and we've had some conversations that have led nowhere, and then we've had other conversations that. Uh, um, <laughs> and really, that, that, that didn't even lead, you know, that got even didn't go as far as that. Then we then we had other ones that went further than that that kind of didn't get consummated. But you know, it's um, uh, because we don't have, you know, we're independent, we're not owned by anyone, so no one's kind of, uh, no one has any kind of growth plan that we have to satisfy. Um, you know, there's no particular rush to uh, um, to add partners or to make the firm bigger. Outside of the fact that it's just every time I find that a new partner comes in, they always add something really stimulating to the mix, and everyone. 
picks up the pace a little bit just because the introduction of the new person, um, you know, sparks everyone else on some level. Yeah, I mean, I do find that um, bringing senior people into an organization is often very challenging in terms of, you know, the cultural fit. So the fact that you've had so much success, I mean, I think there's been, what, two or three people over the last 10 years or 15 years that have left that haven't made it? I think that's an extraordinary feat. Yeah, 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 no, it's, um, uh, um, and, and, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's true. I mean, we've been able to uh, organizationally somehow keep rejuvenating, um, you know, the firm just by bringing in people that I think are successfully younger generations. So, and I was once one of those younger generation people. Now I'm not anymore. Sort of sad. Well, we're both in that sort of horrible approaching middle age range. <laughs> we're going to have to take a break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the wonderful Michael Beirut. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Cheryl Swanson from Tonic. I'm going to be chairing the upcoming brand identity and package design event April 18th through 20th at the Plaza Hotel with Debbie Millman. Debbie and I have been co-chairing this event together for many years, and this year will be the biggest event of its history. We love this conference because it integrates marketing, design, research, and production issues. You'll learn from more than 45 design and marketing leaders about paths to success and pitfalls to avoid. Join Gillette, MTV, Starbucks, General Mills, P&G Beauty, Dell, The Clorox Company, Master Foods, Estee Lauder, Dial, Microsoft, Hallmark Cards, Unilever, CVS, Nestle, Coors, and Texas Instruments at the event of the year. Go in-depth on the topics most important to you. Enjoy candid conversations, catch up with old friends, and meet new colleagues at the plaza. Gain usable insights from thought leaders like Marianne Pesch, President of Personal Care at Gillette, John Maida from MIT, Stanley Hainsworth, Global Creative Director at Starbucks, Bruce Mao, Stefan Sagmeister, and lots of other visionaries. For more information, call 1-888-670-8200 or visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or email register at IIRUSA.com. Mention Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Looking forward to seeing you April 18th at the Plaza in New York City. Are you looking for a unique perspective on today's market from an experienced economist? Well, look no further. Listen to The Economic Contrarian with host Mike Norman every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Mike and his guests will discuss new trends in the marketplace as well as emerging companies and opportunities. So if you want in-depth analysis from a contrarian point of view, don't miss The Economic Contrarian Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Win with effective marketing. Win with proper positioning and branding. Win with Dick McDonald on his show, Win-Win Marketing for Buyers and Sellers, every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. On the show, we will discuss the challenges and common mistakes made in today's industry while providing you insight on what you can do to avoid these pitfalls. 
Get ahead with effective marketing in today's world. Listen to Win Win Marketing for Sellers and Buyers with Dick McDonald. Heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on the bottom line of business, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now, back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back, listeners. It is 3.48 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the charming Michael Beirut, partner at Pentagram. And, Michael, we have a caller in with a question. We have Jason from New York City. Jason, welcome to Design Matters. Jason? Well, maybe Jason hung up. I know. Another hang up. Oh, he is in. Jason? Hello? Hello? You're You're on the air, Jason? Well, it seems like we're having technical difficulties. Um, Michael, let's talk. This is just like real radio, Debbie. Uh, it is. It really is. <laughs> let's talk for a minute um, about some of uh, the work that you've done. Tell me about, could, could you pick, if you had to, your favorite project? Um, you know, most people sort of are reluctant to do that. But if I had to pick out one that I've enjoyed working on for the past few years, it would be uh, um, this uh uh, project that we've done for a philanthropic foundation called the Robin Hood Foundation, which uh, um, raises money to benefit mostly uh, um, uh, New, York, New York City kids in a, uh, often in marginal neighborhoods or marginal situations. And what they've done is raise a lot of money and give some kind to build school libraries uh, in New York City public schools throughout the five boroughs, focusing on, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, lower-income neighbors in the Bronx and Brooklyn, particularly, and um, uh, they've recruited this big roster of really great architects to work on the libraries, uh, including everyone from Todd Williams and Billy Chen to um, uh, David Rockwell to 1100 Architect to Salon McCann to um, uh, Deborah Burke and Weissman and Freddie, really great architects that are, and many more that are really fun to work with. And uh, um, we were assigned the job of being sort of the graphic design coordinators for the whole project, uh, which has meant that we've been involved in, you know, dozens of these libraries now around uh, the city. And sometimes we just do a little thing like figure out a way to put a sign on the door. Sometimes we've done really elaborate installations that involve murals where we work with other artists and photographers. Um, but the thing that's great about it are, I think, two things that I've particularly enjoyed. One, it's an interdisciplinary project. We're actually building a real place, uh, um, and you're working with smart people, and you're coming up with these uh, different creative solutions to what amounts to the same brief. I mean, the libraries are all sort of on one level the same. They have the same function. They have the same requirements in terms of books and kind of areas for storytelling and for reading. And for, Mostly they look alike as well. Yeah, uh, yeah and, the, and the architects have worked very hard to make them not look alike since we decided, although it would be really kind of convenient to roll these things out as a uh, like a, as a franchise in a way, a la you know Starbucks or any other you know kind of well-designed franchise, uh, it would be possible and kind of 
it may be a little bit easier to do it that way. Um, the people who have worked largely pro bono or just barely compensated for it, like um, uh, the architects and us, sort of thought it would be more fun to not kind of institutionalize or commoditize the process, but to try to kind of come up with fresh things every time we were faced with fresh situations. And so, uh, you know, no, no two of these libraries are exactly alike uh, in the way they've been executed. And what makes it really, really fun is that each one of them has a grand opening ceremony that's usually led by the principal and the head librarian and involve, you know, original poems that were written by the kids in honor of the event and sometimes an original song that the kids have written as part of their music program. And you can actually, you know, the excitement that the kids have that this thing has landed in their midst is absolutely palpable and, uh, and thrilling and inspiring and everything else. So there's tons of projects I've worked on where I sort of, you know, you know, where, you know, you almost, you know, you have to do like, you have to look at, you know, sales results to see whether or not you've, uh, had any effect on things. This is one where you can actually just go there and kind of experience it firsthand. It's really great. Um, you know, so I think that, yeah, that sort of feedback has been really inspiring. Kind of keeps us going on this thing, I would say. So we're about to like do a whole bunch of new ones, actually. Well, I, uh, Oh, that's, that's wonderful. I saw Bruce Mao speak recently, and he was lamenting at the sameness in our culture. You know, if you look at airports, if you look at train stations, if you look at malls, if you look at libraries, he didn't mention libraries in particular, but it certainly could be said, they all look exactly the same, wherever city, whatever city you go in. From stop to stop in a train station or airport to airport, there are very few that really have, you know, a remarkable sense of difference. So it's very, very exciting that you're doing this. Um, what project do you think you regret most? Oh, um, oh, let me. Oh, you know, well, there's. I, I, I'm. I, I actually, uh, um, as a designer, I'm more prolific than anyone knows. I design lots and lots of things, and I have told people that I actually have a much lower batting average than a lot of good designers I know, but I just kind of try to get in as many games as possible so I get as many swings when I'm up at the plate in the chance that I'll be able to kind of like hit one out every now and then. So, I mean, there's there's been, I mean, I mean a lot of times I just kind of like the minute it's, the minute it's printed, finished and printed and too late, I realize the thing I could have done to make it better. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, it's one of those, like, you know, it's, it's sort of like, um, um, you sort of, it's like something slipped your mind and you can't remember. You know, you can't remember someone's uh, name. Then, then you ask yeah. someone, uh, oh, "What's that thing called?" And then the minute they start to say it, it pops back into your mind. Yep. I mean, I've had that experience, you know, a half dozen times. You know, I have it about once a year. And usually, it's seldom with something really big and important that I feel a lot is at stake with. Um, but it's, sometimes it's been some some smaller projects that I really cared a lot about where uh, um, I just kind of realized at the last. You know, the, the, the minute after midnight that I kind of like uh, didn't do that one, that I lost track of that one thing. And there always seem to be basic principles that I could just write down. You know, they yeah. always have to do with with kind of like losing track of what the basic idea is and getting distracted by something else. And I and it's bad enough when uh, circumstances, either you know, provoked by a client or by a budget or a deadline, kind of force you to do that. But there's been times where I've done it to myself, and I just hate that. Well. Actually, Michael, Jason has called back. Apparently, he really would like to talk with you. So, Jason, I hope you're still with us. Welcome to Design Matters. 
Okay, I, I give up. <laughs> no more Jason. <laughs> okay. Well, Michael, this is the part of the show, this very last part of the show. I, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with it, but we have our pop culture quiz, and the pop culture quiz is just real fast questions that I ask my guests about things that might be going on in contemporary culture, things that I'm thinking about, or just things that I want to know about you. So I'm okay. going to shoot out some questions, and you can shoot out some answers, and Unfortunately, after that, our show will be over. So, yeah, so bring it on. Charles Dickens or Henry James? Um, Charles Dickens. Most inspiring city? Um, New York. Ringling Brothers or Cirque du Soleil? Ringling Brothers. The designer most stocked in your closet? Most stocked? Yes. I thought he said stalked for <laughs> There's no idea. Um, <laughs> Stephen is waiting for you at home. <laughs> you, mean, you mean clothes? Clothes, yeah. Um, um, Paul Smith. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Um, being on the beach with my wife and three kids and a book uh, at sunset. And how many pairs of shoes do you own? A shockingly low number. Anyone who knows me will tell me. <laughs> uh, if I don't count my running shoes, um, like, I'm at four. Okay. Isn't that horrible? It's, no, it's actually kind of admirable. I think it's noble. Slovenly, <laughs> I'm sorry. Every once in a I hear someone say that people really look at your shoes to determine how classy you are, and I always feel, like, really terrified when I hear that. I always bow to kind of at least go polish my shoes, but... Oh, I thought it was your watch. <laughs> but I've been accused of having really awful shoes too, so I'm with you there. <laughs> what is your favorite snack? My favorite snack? Uh huh. Um, Oreos. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, double uh, the double snacks no, or just the no, single? No, you're okay. <laughs> of course not. Um, what defines a man better, his drink or his drive? Um. Drink, I would say. Yeah? And what's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Well, I, this isn't weird. People eat this all the time. But I have a thing where I go into restaurants and I say that they can bring me anything they want as long as no one else at the table is having it. Mm-hmm. And one time, very when I first got to New York, someone took me to a really fancy restaurant in New York, and I was really terrified of the menu. And one of the things they had was sweetbreads, and I oh, thought there would be sort yes. of like sticky buns, like Danish. Mm, yeah. Like, I, mean, <laughs> I, I had those in Ohio, you know, yeah, cinnamon buns, yeah. Right. So uh, I said, oh, these sweetbreads, you know. And, uh, and then they brought me this stuff, and I was like, what the hell is this? And it just, I remember like being like absolutely so horrified at them. So but 20 years later, 25 years later, I was in a restaurant, and I said, uh, you can bring me anything you want on the menu. Anything you want except sweetbreads. So they brought me this stuff, and I thought it was like really good. But man, it was good. And I said, what was this again? They said, oh, that was sweetbreads. Is that what you asked for? So there you have it. So, I mean, a lot of people eat sweetbreads all the time, but I sort of, uh, I've eaten them only twice, and the first time I knew what they were. I didn't know what they were, and I really hated them. The second time I didn't know what they were, and I really liked them. So. Oh, well, thank you, Michael. Well, we've unfortunately come to the end of our 12th broadcast. I'd like to thank the magnificent Michael Beirut for joining me today. I'd also like to thank the kind and patient people at Voice America Business, Denise, Dion, Chris, Lori, and my executive producer, Brian Travis. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Group and my incredible producer, Lisa Grant. Join me next week for our Season 1 finale live in Las Vegas. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. 
Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Get dialed in. 1-866-233-7861. 